This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Morning, everybody. So Dan is a really good friend of mine, so I'm going to gig him a little bit, all right? Yeah, I love his Irish background, and he and I golf quite often together. And uh, the Beatles had a song called Eight Days a Week, but Dan just trumped them. He said something about 365 days a week. That, my friends, is a long week. Have you ever had a week that seemed that long? Yeah, we all have, right? So anyway, uh, welcome to church this morning. I want to lead us in a prayer Uh, So if you would mind joining me, God, it's great as a church to come to you in prayer, and it's a wonderful way for us to recognize that we are here to meet with you. And if we come here and we miss you, that, uh, well, we actually never made it to church. And so we're here to meet with you. And there's so many important things happening in our world Uh, But I'm just reminded this morning that this is sort of the tail end of Black History Month. And uh, it reminds me of the tremendous struggle that many of our black and, and people of color friends and neighbors have the tremendous struggle that oftentimes life presents them. And I know oftentimes people like me Uh, who just don't actually realize what that struggle is like. And uh, so we pray against any form of bias, against any form of prejudice, against any form of favoritism, and we long for and work for a country, a community where people are on a level playing field, and they are equally and fully loved and equally and fully accepted. And uh, so we just want to lift that up to you today. And God, we're grateful that the churches in our city that are part of city ministries are praying for us today. And uh, so we just want to join with them and pray for new life in our search for uh, a new lead pastor. Would you Uh, really be present with our pastoral leadership search team that works so hard every week and interviews candidates. And would you give them nudges from your spirit that guide them in the right directions and as we get further on into that process and the stewards take a more prominent role, would you do the same for them? And our prayer is that you would bring to us a pastor that would be our pastor for decades and that would actually take the vision and the mission you've given to this church and take it to fuller and more complete fulfillment. Right now, would you give us open hearts as we take your word and we open it and begin to study the way of Jesus? And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, if you've been coming to New Life since the beginning of the year, you're aware that at various seasons throughout this year, we're going to be taking a journey 
through a letter that's in the Bible that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And so if you look it up in the table of contents, the, this letter is called Ephesians. Um, and the, this church holds a distinction in Paul's life because he spent more time leading the church in the city of Ephesus than he did any other church that he started. And that's kind of cool. Secondly, as you read through the New Testament, you, you find these letters that if you have an older version of the Bible, they're called epistles, which I know sounds like an epistle is the wife of an apostle, right? It's not actually true. An epistle is an old-fashioned word for letter, okay? And you will find um, these letters called Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All these letters that were written to various churches, and usually these are churches that Paul started, and most of them had a problem or two that Paul was having to deal with. And you think churches have problems today. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and when you came to church in Corinth, they had the auditorium divided into sections, not so that there would be aisles that you could get through it, but there was a Peter section here and a Paul section here and a Jesus section over here, and they didn't talk to each other. How fun would that be? When they all filed in. Well, you only talked to the people who sat in your section. But it got a little worse than that. There was animosity in that church because the church members were suing each other in court. That might create a problem, don't you think? And of course, because churches are close-knit communities, part of them would be buddied up with the person who was doing the suing, and part of them would be buddied up with the person who was the defendant. But it gets worse than that. They had a problem at communion. People were getting drunk at communion. Now, I'm guessing they weren't serving grape juice. They are probably serving the real deal. And the first people that got there would down the whole thing. And when people got there a little late, they got nothing. Yeah. So when Paul writes to the people in Corinth, man, he's got some problems to sort out, right? And I didn't even give you all the problems. Those are just the major ones. But when he writes to the church in Ephesus, this church that he has personally led for a lengthy period of time, He's not actually dealing with any problems. He simply is laying out for them what this way of Jesus looks like in real time. And the cool thing is, he doesn't want them to miss any of it. So it's the clearest description we have in the entire Bible of what it means to follow Jesus. So periodically throughout the year, 
We're going to take sections of this book and work our way through this letter to the Ephesians. And it's simply called The Way of Jesus in Our Church. So, Thank you, Gus. I'm supposed to be setting up communion, not teaching. Are you up for that? Thank you, Gus. So here we go. Remember all that. You're going to need that in a few minutes, all right? So here's how this ties in. This is actually part of our scripture for this morning, okay? Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And then Paul ends that by saying, it is by grace you have been saved. So we're going to focus on the grace of God this morning. And the greatest demonstration of the grace of God was his decision to save us instead of condemn us. Instead of giving up on us and saying they're not worth it, God said, I don't care what it costs, I will save them. And because of his grace, the song that's going to play in the background has, a, has a, an accompanying truth. It says, because of God's grace, my chains are gone. I've been set free. So as we go to take communion around the tables, let's rejoice that we have been set free by the grace of God. And we'll learn more about that later. Um, I want to say a short prayer, and then I will dismiss us to go and receive communion. You can listen to the lyrics in the background. And if you're brand new to our church, communion is open to all. If you want to honor Christ, you go get at one of the tables a communion kit. If you don't know how to use it, ask somebody who's back there. They'll show you how. Um, and then you can serve yourself communion. You eat the bread first because it represents the body of Christ broken for us. And then you drink the cup because it represents the blood of Christ, his life that he gave for us. Uh, but communion is also optional. No one in the audience needs to feel obligated to go and partake. You need to do that if you feel led. God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for your grace that sets us free. Right now in this moment, we celebrate that our chains are gone. And we pray in your own name. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I
What a great truth, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to trust you to remember everything I said before, all right? You have grace for me? Okay, thank you, thank you, all right. So the way of Jesus, a lot of us don't know that originally there was no name to call Christians. They didn't actually have a name. And so the people who were not following Jesus didn't know what to call them. So eventually they just called them members of the way. And everybody knew, oh, the way? The way that they lived was so different from the way the world lived that everybody knew it. You couldn't help but see it. And so the world began to call them simply the way. And so I think it would be wonderful if we as followers of Christ were to live lives so uniquely different from the rest of the world that they began to look at us and go, wow, there's something really different about them. And not, not odd different, good different. Got it? We can all be odd, but it's the good different. All right? So how did this happen? Well, Jesus gave an invitation consistently as he taught and led people And it's the one invitation, it's only got got two words in it, and this was the invitation he gave consistently, and that was, follow me. And that's why at New Life, we often refer to ourselves as Jesus followers. Because it reminds us that's what we're supposed to be doing. And when people decided to follow Jesus, it so radically impacted their lives that others couldn't help but notice. Take a look at this passage where the author of Luke, uh, in Luke, the author of Acts writes, when they, that was the religious leaders of the day, saw the courage of Peter and John, they were astonished and they took note that these men had what? Been with Jesus. Wow. I have prayed through that prayer many times and said as I sat with Jesus, would you so profoundly touch and change me that the people in my world will know that I have been with you. What a great thing. And so, the followers of Jesus became known as the way of Jesus. And what did that look like in real life? Well, primarily three things, and here they are. It meant doing what Jesus did. When you were a kid, you used to play follow the leader, right? You know what that means. When the leader did something stupid, you did the same stupid thing, right? Exactly. And if you were the leader, you tried to find the stupidest thing you could do, right? Of course, because you wanted to make your friends look like idiots. Yeah. Thankfully, Jesus didn't do idiotic things. Jesus did wonderful things. So when we follow Jesus, we do what Jesus did, but We do it in the way Jesus did it. That's really important. Now, for those of you who have been coming a few weeks, we've touched 
on a lot of the stuff that I'm going to teach this morning. We've touched on it in our impact series. And there's a whole sermon in there about what it means to act with the touch of Christ. That's doing not only what Jesus did, but in the way he did it. And then last of all, is probably the biggest challenge, doing it with the attitude of Jesus or the heart space of Jesus. One of the biggest things that Christ calls us to do is love people we don't like. It's real quiet in here. That's hard, isn't it? It's easy to love the people we like, but the people that irritate us, and how about the people who come against us? Huh, Jesus said this. You all know it. I know you've heard it. Even if you've never been to church before, I know you've heard this. Jesus said, love your what? Enemies. Yeah. We have been called to love people that we don't like and that don't like us. And when we do that, it is way different than how it's practiced out in the world, right? Yeah. That is the attitude with which Jesus Jesus did his stuff. Now, our passage of Scripture for this morning out of the book of Ephesians is really a microcosm of the gospel. It's got, it's got less than 10 sentences. It's really a paragraph. And it's really, if you were to take a snapshot of the gospel, this is it. And, and it's divided into, it divides itself pretty naturally into three different categories. And the first is what we've been saved from. The second is what we've been saved by. And the third is what we've been saved too. And when we get it all together, it, it is so beautiful. So I just want to go to the passage and let's start reading and dive into this passage. God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he made us alive with Christ. Now I've highlighted two phrases. We were dead and the phrase made us alive. The juxtaposition of those two is crazy. Being dead is kind of as far down as you can get in this world, right? Because if you're dead, you're done. Being going from death to life, being alive and fully alive is as good as it gets. So in this one verse, Paul is taking us from the bottom to the very top. And he's saying that we have been saved from this dead way of living because of the grace of God and the love and the mercy of God. And primarily, <clears throat> Paul is referring to three things <clears throat> that are directly connected to our sin. Let's take a look at those. We have been saved from the consequences of our sin. If you're taking notes, you can flip over your news and notes and write this down. The consequences, the direct consequences of our sin is separation from God. 
And here is the reality. If we don't get our sins taken care of, we will end up eternally separated from God. Friends, when you and I enter into eternity, that's the one thing we don't want. If there's anybody we want next to us in that hospice bed, when we are breathing our last, we want to know that God is with us and that he's going to carry us safely across and he's going to usher us into his home where we get to live for eternity. But the first consequence of our sin is the separation from God. I know, whether you're a Jesus follower or not, I know you have felt separation from God. We all have. It's not fun. When we feel like God's a long ways away, and we feel like He's not near, and He might not be hearing us, and we have prayed, and we think He's not answering. Anybody relate to that? All of us can, right? We've all felt that. Well, Jesus came to save us from that form of death where we feel separated from God. The second thing connected with our sin is the guilt of our sin. Have you ever said something and you went, oh, that was dumb? Have you ever said something and thought, that sounded better in my head? <laughs> Have you ever said something and you thought, man, if I could take that back, I would take that back. Sin has this debilitating weight that comes with it that weighs us down. And the interesting thing about sin is the longer we carry it, the heavier the weight gets. Have you noticed that? It's hard. It's really hard. And we're wired that way on purpose. Because if you could sin and not feel any guilt, you'd never do anything about it, right? That's why skinny people never go on diets until they go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have a cholesterol problem. And they're going, what, me? Because until there are some real consequences that come with our behavior, until there's some guilt and a sense of danger and a sense of, of there's problems ahead, we don't tend to deal with it. But Paul comes and says, look, God who's rich in mercy and love took you when you were dead in your sins and you felt weighed down by them and you felt separated from him and he made you alive in Christ. The third thing is the bondage of sin. Have you ever felt like sin is like Velcro? It just sticks on you and you can't get rid of it? Yeah, it's hard. Sin gets a hold on us. Have you ever found yourself yelling at your children and you say to yourself, I'm never yelling at my kids again? And later that same day, what are you doing? Yelling at your kids. I mean, we could illustrate this a thousand ways. There's this interesting thing about sin. It, it makes us feel separated from God. 
it produces this weight in our lives and it tends to get a hold on us. And Jesus shows up and says, let me take you from that spiral that's taking you down and let me make you alive and set you free. We heard the song, my chains are gone. I've been set free. My God, my Savior, ransomed me. Yeah. See, here's the truth. We get this on right. No matter what comes our way in life, we can now live with an unshakable joy. Are you ready for this? If you're a Jesus follower, I hope the Holy Spirit tattoos a smile on your face that you can't get rid of. It's just there. Why? Because no matter what happens in life, we, my friends, if we're following Jesus, are headed to heaven. We're on a train, and that train has only one destination, and it's not stopping till it gets there. And we are we're on a train that's taking us to the very house of God, the eternal home of the God who created us, and every setback we have along the way is no big deal because he has guaranteed us that we will get there, we will get there on time, and we will get there in good shape. Are you on board with that? Yes. yes, we should have this unspeakable joy. By the way, the people Paul was writing to, those people were being bitterly persecuted for their faith. And yet, they still had this unspeakable joy. No wonder people looked at them and said, wow, they don't live like anybody else. Yeah. Let's go back to our passage. Paul goes on to say, it's only by God's grace that you have been saved for he raised us from the dead along with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. I'm not even going to dig into what it means to be seated in the heavenly realms, but could you agree with me that if you're seated in the heavenly realms, you should have a smile on your face? That would make sense, right? Okay. He goes on to say, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Here's the point. If I don't recognize what I've been saved from, I can't really appreciate the salvation God has given me. And if I don't recognize how I've been saved, I might accidentally be grateful for the wrong thing. I had a guy ask me one day, and there's a story in the Bible that, that uh, about a guy by the name of Lazarus, and Lazarus got sick and died, and Jesus showed up at his tomb, and he told the people, roll back the stone from the tomb, and he shouted into this empty tomb that had a body in the back of it, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus got up and walked out and came forth. It was an awesome moment. Now, here's the question. Could Lazarus take any credit for his resurrection? What do you think? Did he come out flexing? I'm good. Yeah. No, 
He was so grateful. Listen, you and I have been saved. We have been raised with Jesus. And we can't take an ounce of credit for it. It's a gift. And no matter how long you've been saved, no matter how many good things you have done, no matter how much money you have given, no matter how many homes you have built in Mexico, none of that impresses heaven. And your salvation doesn't rely on any of it. I stood by the bed of a woman who had been a Christian for many years, but she had been raised in a legalistic church and she only knew legalistic theology And as I stood by her bed and she was dying, you know what she said to me? I just hope I've done enough. Now, I didn't tell her the truth. I know, you're looking at me funny. Because the truth was, I should have said to her, well, you have it. But I didn't think that would be particularly comforting. So instead, you know what I said to her? Jesus has this for you. Okay, even though she couldn't grasp it. I wanted her to know that. Because the truth is, not one of us in this room could ever do enough to save ourselves. And it's not like some people characterize, you do all that you can do and whatever the gap is that is in there, God will make it up by his grace. Nope. That's not how God's grace works. It covers the whole thing. You got that? Yeah. We can't take any credit for where we're going any more than Lazarus could take credit for his own resurrection. If we have been raised with Christ, it's because Jesus raised us, right? Purely and simply. So because we have been saved, Only through the generous grace of God, we can now live with unending gratitude. Thank you, God, for saving me in my brokenness. When I had nothing to offer, you didn't care. It wasn't about what I offered anyway. It's about what you offered and about what you gave. Let's go back and see how Paul finishes this this passage. He says, we are God's masterpiece. Whoa, stop the presses right there. This is all good and wonderful, but it's not until here we realize that it's not about God's goodness and it's not about God's grace. Yeah, that's great. But this is where this whole thing turns into a masterpiece. It's not just a painting. It's not just a beautiful painting. This is when it turns into God's masterpiece. Wow. Here's how he puts it. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned long ago. I don't want to preach ahead a teaching that we're going to have later, but I do want to give a little hint toward it. 
A couple of months ago, when we were doing a, a stint in this book of Ephesians, we saw that the church is the billboard of God's love and grace and power. We are exhibit A. There are some questions resonating out there in the spirit world of eternity. And the questions are like this. God, in his love and grace, has decided to save a sinful and disgusting world. And if you don't think it's disgusting, just watch your news every day. What we do to each other is unconscionable. And God looked at us, and when you and I would have said, you know what? I'm going to punt and start over, <laughs> right? I'm not going to save that bunch. Look what they're doing. I put a piece of myself in them. I created them in my image. And look what they have done with my image. God had every right to just go poof and say, let's start again. But he didn't. God who is rich in mercy and who loved us so much that when we were dead, he made us alive. And the powers of eternity looked at God and said, are you sure? That looks like a really dumb choice. And not only was it dumb, do you think they're worth it? What can you ever do with that gang? They don't even know how to treat each other right. They're broken. They're hateful. They say terrible things. Even the best of them say and do things that they regret. God, what could you make out of that? And God said, you watch. I can make beauty where there's only ugliness now. And so, God had a master plan, and you'll see it here. We are God, no, back one, please. We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. God had a master plan, and he started listing all these good things, and he said to the powers of eternity, you watch. I'm going to save those people, and I'm going to so change them <coughs> that instead of doing what they've been doing, they're going to do this. And the powers of eternity looked at those things and said, no way, <laughs> no way. You're going to get those people to do that? And God said, yeah, I will. And so here's what this means to you and me. <clears throat> because we have been saved to do the work of God on this earth, we can now live a life of unselfish 
service. For weeks we've been talking about impact. What is impact? Unselfish service. Uh, three months ago, we did a ministry fair. What is the ministry fair about? It was about unselfish service. It's doing the good things that God planned out for us long ago. You see, in life, life leaves us, and this is where the message gets kind of really personal. And, and so I kind of want you to look inwardly and do some introspection. Life leaves us only two alternatives, and here they are, and that is pleasure and purpose. And in our Western world, and oh, by the way, it's not just in the Western world. It's in the Eastern world. It's, it's, in, it's everywhere I've ever been, okay? The way that life is portrayed as if you want to have the best life, you emphasize pleasure and you do enough things on purpose to relieve your conscience. But buy this car, buy this house, take this trip, wear these clothes, do these things, accomplish this, buy this makeup. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you can just climb the mountain of pleasure and be on top of it, but realize it's not all about you. So do a few things that, that help relieve your conscience and you feel like you're doing something good. Then you will really have lived. Jesus came along and said, no, if you really want to live, follow me. Okay? Make purpose the heart of your life and throw in some pleasure for balance. Oh, by the way, make it healthy pleasure. Not guilty pleasure, healthy pleasure. Okay? And the amazing thing is that when psychologists and psychiatrists study people, the happiest people they find, every study I've ever seen, the happiest people they find are the people who have invested their life in a selfless purpose, doing good for others. Huh. Jesus might have been on to something. Yeah. You see, as we wrap this up, the way of Jesus is a way that has unshakable joy, unending gratitude, and unselfish service. In a way, our lives are like a kaleidoscope. You know what a kaleidoscope is? Yeah, you, you look through it as kids, right? And you were like, how does it do that, right? It, it's pretty cool. And when I thought about our lives, I thought, when we get this right, there's this amazing thing that happens. And that is when people see us from the outside, they see this unspeakable joy. When we get it right, and we know what we have been saved from, and we are so happy to be saved. And they see in us this unending gratitude because we realize it's not because of what we have done. It's by the grace of God we have been saved. And because of that, we realize that we have been saved for the purpose of unselfish service. And when we dedicate our lives to unselfish service, 
there's something really wonderful that happens. By the way, if you want a way to remember this one, I have taught for years, and I know you can remember this. Are you ready? God didn't save anyone to sit. He saved everyone to serve. Got it? Yeah, so don't just come and sit at church. He saved all of us to serve. Now, here's what I want you to see about this kaleidoscope. When you look at us from the outside, you see joy, you see gratitude, and you see service. But if you could, what would you see when you looked in here? You would see the Holy Spirit building in us the beautiful character of Jesus. And all of these flow out of the beauty that's being created in there. I want to close with a story. It's an ancient fable, really. And it's the story of a king and a prince. And the prince was not born into the royal family, but the prince was made a prince by the declaration of the king and was promoted to that place. And there were all sorts of governors and there were other princes in this kingdom. But this prince had a loyalty and a dedication to the king that far surpassed all the others. And as you might guess, when one person in a group stands above the others, the others tend to get jealous and suspicious. Have you noticed that? Yeah. And so they did. And they began to wonder, what is the secret to his loyalty to the king? It seems absolutely unshakable. No matter what the king asks, he does it willingly and without grumbling. And he does it with a smile on his face every day. And so they began to stalk him. We got to figure out what the secret is. And it wasn't long until a pattern developed. And they noticed that at least once a day and sometimes twice a day, and every once in a while, even three times in a day, this prince would go to his room in the royal palace and had an old skeleton key, right? And he would put it in the hole and he would turn the key and he would walk inside the room. He would lock the door behind him and he would be in there for 10 minutes or so and then he would emerge and he would go back to his duties. Now his fellow governors and princes decided there's something that happens in that room. So one of them said, you know what? There's a keyhole in that door. And I apologize if you're under 50 and you've never seen one of those old locks, okay? You couldn't peer through a keyhole today if you had to, but the old locks had a keyhole. And he said, I'm gonna go look through the keyhole, see if I can see anything. So the very next day, the prince went to his room, unlocked the door, walked in, locked it back up. And this other guy came up and peered through the keyhole. And he saw the prince walk across the room and there was a chest or a trunk there. And the prince had a chain around his neck 
and it always had a key on it, and they all wondered what it was. He took that chain off of his neck, took the key, put it in the chest, unlocked the chest, and opened the chest. And then kneeling down, he peered inside the chest for five or ten minutes. And then he gently closed it, locked it up again, put the chain around his neck, walked back to the door, and went out to serve. Well, when the guy who observed this told all of his buddies, they began to speculate what's in the chest. The king must be slipping gold to him or diamonds or gems or something. So the next day at sword point, they forced him to his room and to unlock the door. They forced him to go to the chest, take off the chain and unlock it. And when he unlocked it and raised it, they were so confused. In the bottom of the trunk were the torn, tattered, and filthy clothes of a beggar. They looked at him in astonishment, and he erased all their doubts with one sentence. He said, gentlemen, I don't ever want to forget who I was. When the king found me, said, hey, I don't want any of us to forget who we were when the king found us. Because when we know what we've been saved from, and we know how we've been saved, we can then serve from a platform of joy and gratitude and selfless service because we remember who we were when the king found us. Let's pray. God, we are so blessed. We are so grateful. We are so filled with joy and excited. And we are so ready to serve because that's your master plan for us. And we're so grateful that we're included in your master plan. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.